and welcome to this week's episode of I Was Good At Podcast. This week's guest is John McGlynn, entrepreneur and founder of Scottish Capital. John McGlynn, thanks very much for joining us here in the I Was Going To Podcast. It's a pleasure to meet you. My pleasure. Glad to be here. The first question we have to ask is it's such an unusual time and the pandemic's been going on now for almost 18 months. And we have to ask the question, how have you found the unusual time and what have you been doing to keep yourself busy? Well, you know, we we all know that we are living in just the craziest of times. And at the start of this whole thing, I don't know anyone who didn't press the pause button and say, what the heck is going on here? Uh, and you go through the how long is it going to last? How's it going to impact on me personally, on family, on business? Um, luckily for me, you know, from a business perspective, we're in some great sectors and uh, we've been very, very, very lucky that uh, you know, COVID has actually generated more activity for us. Um, from a personal point of view, I've also been very lucky that I've kind of been working from home for the last seven years since I kind of handed the day-to-day reins over to a great team. So, you know, I sympathise with people who have been hugely affected and I feel that I'm really fortunate from a personal and a business perspective that the, you know, the real limitations on COVID have been pretty limited. So it's a progress that the, the podcast to talk about you, if we can. Going right the way back, John, you were educated in Scotland. Can you tell us a wee bit more about that time? Yeah, I mean, I'm a proud Paisley buddy and I was fortunate enough to go to Paisley Grammar School. I was there for many years until the local council proposed to close it down. And then I was uh, sent off to St. Columbus and Kilmacombe. Uh, I've got to say I really loved school, but I hated academia. I hated things that I saw as kind of useless for a, for a life in business. Um, I don't think I've told anyone this one before, but I failed miserably at school. I got one C in my hires, and that was after two sittings. Um, but we had a great headmaster, a chap called Mr Livingston. He was actually the deputy head at Paisley Grammar. He moved to St Columbus, and that was what prompted the move, going, he's a great guy. You know, he'll set the tone for for the school. Um, but he wrote me an amazing reference, and that got me into an HNC, an accounting course at Napier, a course that I shouldn't have got into. Uh, and then the progression was, once you've done your HNC, you're supposed to do an HND. That's another two years. But uh, I Napier wouldn't budge on that point, so I got came back through and went to Glasgow Caledonian and went to meet the kind of head of the accounts department and said, here's all my grades in the real world subjects. I don't have a year to waste. I want to go straight into second year HND. And to my amazement, they allowed me to do that. Uh, once I finished my HND, the plan is you go into second year of your accounts degree uh, and then you get two years and history repeated itself. And I did the same again saying, you know, very good grades in these subjects. I can go straight into third year and uh, they allowed me to do it. So, yeah, it was good. I mean, I think Accounts and law have been utterly invaluable uh, to what I do day to day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, two aspects before we, we, we delve a wee bit further. You've got a good pedigree in the Paisley Grammar. There's been a number of people, Andrew Neil being one that's come through the, the, the Paisley Grammar side, and a, a, another friend of mine from the, the primary school years, uh, John uh, Amabile. Uh, and I think Bert, it was at uh, uh, Butler, the 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 actor, did, yeah, was he not? So 
it's uh, it's been quite productive in the, the 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 pedigree of the school, so it must have been a very good one for you, Joe. Uh, I know them both very well. Uh, John Amabley is a good friend. I've known him for a long time, and I'm actually having dinner with Andrew Neil tomorrow night. All right, <laughs> another, another good Paisley buddy friend. It's it's a small world, right enough. No, John and I go back to primary school. John Amabley, so uh, he's he's always a, a character and a half uh, larger than life to to meet up with. But uh, the other thing is we noticed the the the, the, the from an academia perspective, the accountancy and law side is what you studied, John, and, and, and that correlates with quite a few of the guests that we've had. We had Martin uh, Gilbert, and that was the direction that he started as well. Do you think those are the two academic uh, studies that you could or you could work on to become an entrepreneur? Do you think those are the two most important uh, subject matters? I would even leave the entrepreneur work to one side and say, if you're going to be in business in any capacity, you know, you don't know your numbers, you're dead in the water. And I say to the, the whole office all the time, if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. And it really is that simple. You need to know the difference between net and gross. You need to know the difference between what's an overhead and what's a, a future revenue. It, it's just, in my view, it's utterly essential. And you don't need to go to uni and have a degree, but you do need to understand the basics. And if you're running a business, you've got to understand the rudimentary, you know, double double entry bookkeeping, you've got to understand how your accounts are constructed. You know, you've got to understand there's a difference between your taxable profit and your cash surplus. Uh, and there's so many people that I, I know from years ago, and they would have no idea how their business was doing until six months after the year end when their accountants told them. And that's why most startups and small businesses, in my view, go bust, because they run out of cash. Yeah. No, I, again, the parallels, Colin, I, I know that you want to come in on this because of the education side of things. But My the part this was even simpler. It's just because I'm from Paisley and I was so mean. I, wouldn't, I didn't want to pay accountants and lawyers bills. I could do most of the thinking myself. <laughs> no, the parallels with uh, an awful lot of the business people that we've had on here, John, is, is significant. Was it Mike Smith that said it's all about the numbers? Yes, the, I, know, I know Mike as well. Yeah. Mike Smith, yeah. Uh, and that was the first yeah. thing that he said. Lord Hoy said exactly the same. Colin, do you want to come in regarding the education side of things? I think there's a commonality what we've heard here, but I, I, I agree fully with what you're saying there, John. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're going to either be signing a contract to a client or someone signing you as a client, you need to understand the profitability and you need to understand your liabilities. So the two subjects you've covered, even if you're not the lawyer and you're not the accountant, you'll have to talk to the lawyer and you'll have to talk to the accountant. So it's a very good uh, discipline because it's actually the control discipline that you're doing there. But uh, good good uh, background and back uh, baseline stuff that you need, especially if somebody's trying to hoodwink you or do the wrong kind of contract deal. So, yeah, I, I get that. But you can't necessarily get that at school. That's, uh, I've, also, I've also got the same issue around it. I, le you know, I learned a lot more out in my working life than I could at school or university. School and university just kind of hones you to see whether or not in, in line with the, the system you can get a qualification. But it doesn't necessarily uh, really uh, explain how clever or smart you can really be. The number of people I met who didn't adapt to the education system, but in, in later life, 
like yourself, have been successful anyway. So, I, 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 but I think also there's something about the education system in the UK and in Scotland especially that isn't helping. So I think, you know, again, here you are, John, you're another product of a successful business background, but you're not necessarily crediting the, the education system for getting you there. And, uh, you know, now that we've got a of a shambles in Scotland, especially the young ones coming through, we're, we're hoping we're doing the best we can to help them. But, uh, but there's just this other dimension that we are interested in the charity. And that is that there's some ingredient in each of us that some people have the spark to ignite it. So you want to go and do something despite whether you're educated, academically achieved or not. And that's that's what we're interested in to hear as well, because there's something obviously you had a dimension about you that you decided you were going to do something. And I, and I think you, you made reference to it in some of the materials online that you've actually uh, you started your business before you even finished education, your first yep. business. So, so I'm just curious to get a feel for what was it about you that said, I'm going to do something, I'm going to go for it. Because um, the education system didn't do it for you. You used it uh, to a degree afterwards, but there was something obviously you had joined that, that drove you on to, to do what you did. What was that in the early years? I think, to be honest, everyone's made differently uh, and you know everyone's got different motivations and, and different different things um if you're going to start a business and if it's going to be a successful business you know you've really got to want to do it and you've got to want to do it more than anything else on earth it really is a vocation in my view you know you, you it's it really it is who you are and what you do. And if you don't want to do it, then you shouldn't do it. And, you know, people get shocked when I say to people on things like this, when you meet people and people ask you for advice, say, you actually really sure you want to do that? And people say, you're supposed to be encouraging me. I said, no, I'm supposed to be encouraging you to do what's right for you. This is what's right for me. That doesn't mean to say it's right for you or the next person. Because, um, you know, most people won't give it the commitment that uh, it takes to, to make it. That's just the sad reality, and it's maybe you know the the cold hard truth that people don't want to hear. But that is the reality of the situation. I'm I'm curious on that if John, if if you don't mind me, just sort of probing a wee bit further. Interestingly, that um, when we interviewed Lord Hoy and uh, Ricky Nickel, they both said uh, their their backgrounds were almost a, what motivated them. That they were both from. Uh, in in Lord Hoy's or a background, it was uh, from the Gorbals. Ricky Nicol talked about Craig Miller, and in some respects, it was that they it, they didn't necessarily set out to become multi-millionaires. They set out to get away from the poverty that they had been in, and that was their trigger point. Was was there a, an element that triggered you? Yeah, and I think it's a very common theme that you'll hear from lots and lots of people. Um, I, I kind of come at this from the opposite end of the scale. I'm not saying I was born with a silver spoon, but uh, I think my first day getting dropped off at primary school was in a DB6 Aston Martin. <laughs> uh, fast forward seven years, my uh, first day getting dropped off at Paisley Grammar School was in a 40 quid Austin Princess. So I had seen business life. My father was an entrepreneur in the motor trade and the pub trade. And, you know, he had more ups and downs in the Big Dipper at Blackpool. 
Um, and quite frankly, when you see good times and you see bad times, trust me, the good times are a heck of a lot nicer than the bad times. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, there's no doubt whether it was intentional or just subliminal at the back of your mind, you know, you can't unsee things and you can't undo these experiences. And there's no doubt that's what drove me to say, there is no doubt an Aston's nicer than an Austin. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so there's a motivation there, that's what you said. <laughs> well, to be honest, I mean, where, where, where Willie, who's a very good friend of mine, where, where him and I disagree is, I know he hates when people say, I, I set out to become a millionaire. Uh, and he's, he despises that with an absolute passion. But I've got to say, that's what drove me to do it. Um, I, I've always had motivators. And I always said to myself, you know, I need to set a really, really tough target and then you have a reward at the end of that. And uh, for me, in my 21st birthday, when I set up the company, I said, you know, if I can't afford, if I'm not making enough money in business to afford a, a Porsche convertible by 25, I'm just going to stop and go and do accounts or law because it will not be worthwhile in terms of, you know, you need a trigger to what, what, what defines success. And when you're 21, you don't think about all the real things that are successful. You just think about the toys and the you know, the trinkets. And all I can say is I, I thank Porsche most sincerely for bringing out the Boxster because if they hadn't done that, I would have failed in my self-test because I couldn't afford the 911 convertible. But I, I did get a nice Arctic Silver uh, Porsche Boxster, which got delivered to my parents' house on two weeks before my 25th birthday. And I had to sit and stare at it for two weeks because I couldn't get insurance to drive it. Nobody would insure me. <laughs> It's, it's back to the old thing about different things motivate different people in different ways. And, uh, you know, in this era of austerity, people who say they go and do things that are interesting, uh, you know, you get called all the names under the sun. But I, I think it's absolutely right that people should motivate themselves and give themselves treats and rewards. And that could be, you know, something that costs £20 or it could be something that costs twenty grand. It's all relative to, to what you're doing and what you're spending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John, John, if we could just take you back uh, when you were at, I think Colin started talking about it, but when you were at uh, university, you started your first business almost as a hobby, I read. Uh, can you tell us a wee bit more about that time? Yeah, that was an interesting one. So I've only had two jobs in my entire life and they were both kind of summer jobs. So a friend of mine was working part time at NCP Car Park at Glasgow Airport. And uh, I used to always pop down to see them and say, what's happening at the weekend? What are we doing? I thought, you know, they're getting paid to be here and I'm not. So I got a part-time job at NCP with my nice bright yellow jacket on and the kiosks. Um, and having an accounts degree or doing an accounts degree, you can't help but look at the volume of cash that was coming in and looking at the overheads and you try and do rough calculations. And one day I'm sitting there in the little long-stay car park, shuttle buses caught my attention. I thought, I wonder what they do. And then you this before there's, you know, like the internet. So you, you go and drive out and look and you say, that's just a big piece of land with some white lines on it and some lights. Now, as we know, every business is more complex. But when you're a naive student, you think this is dead easy. Anybody can do it. And I just went away and researched it, became obsessed about it and thought, I, I really quite like this sector and it's something I want to do. And uh, I actually, on the 23rd of December, 1993, I'll never forget the day, I, I actually signed the incorporation documents for Airlink Security Park Limited in the law library at Strathclyde. And it was just it was a crazy time. I mean, you know, people, people thought it was like a university project and it was a crazy thing to do because, 
you know, fast forward to 2001, you know, loads of people are setting up businesses and things in their bedroom, but the risk of sounding old now, it wasn't that common back then. It just wasn't the done thing. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And again, that's a very Scottish thing, I think, as well. Do you think that's just the, the situation with that as well, John? You know, that uh, we've got a, a, we've all got an element of that in us, but it was kind of restrained from our background of being in Scotland. You know, it was... Uh, and the other thing is, we're not great at celebrating people who are more than successful more than once. Once is okay. Two is getting big heated, right? And all yeah. this kind of nonsense. When in fact, the, the real drive we should have is it should be con- consistent. We should constantly be trying to improve and do better than we're doing. So, and I, I, you know, I hope somehow we can find a way to get the young ones to believe in that rather than just kind of sitting there feeling that they should just get something because they're entitled. We want them to get that drive. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and you know, people have got to find what is what is their passion. If you want to go and be the best scientist in the world, then find out what's the best what's the best lab or the best place that you can go and explore that and be the best in the world. And you know, I think sometimes people get too focused on being entrepreneurs and being in business. You know that yes, it's important and I love it, but it's not the be all and end all. There's people who are, you know, far more successful and far happier than me and loads of other people doing their chosen field. And I think it's about encouraging people just to go and do the best you absolutely can, if that's what drives you. I mean, I know loads of people who wouldn't change places with me for, you know, a million pounds a year. They want to just do their nine to five, go and watch football at the weekend. They are absolutely the happiest people I know. And, you know, if that's what drives them, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John, uh, the Airlink Group obviously went on to be uh, one of the largest private property groups in Scotland. I just wonder if you could maybe elaborate a wee bit more about how it went on uh, and developed with regards to that. And there's another angle to that that I was I'd, I'd like to introduce as well. I read also that uh, most uh, businesses run on a five-year business plan, uh, but I read that uh, you like to have a look at a 25-year business plan. Is is that still the case, or is that uh, something that I, I picked up incorrect? No, you're you're 100% correct in that. Um, it basically comes from the kind of Japanese Kaizen theory. I used to be the little geek at the back of the classroom at school that used to go and read up and all this stuff. Uh, and a word of warning for people who are at school today, you know, don't be nasty to the wee geek at the back of the class because someday you'll probably be working for them. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it was pretty simple, right? My dad used to always say to me, you know, if you, when you make some money, you know, go and buy land because they ain't making any more of it. And the one thing that I always wanted to do was build a business of a a reasonable scale. So I wasn't really interested in making money this year and then going spending it next year on crazy things that are, you know, holidays and cars and all that kind of stuff. I really wanted to build a business of scale. So every time we made, you know, cash flow from the car park business, um, I'm going to give an example. I, I opened for trading in 1994 and in end of 1995, a huge big site across the road from our first site came up for sale and we bought that in 1996. I still own that property today. Um, So, you know, we like to collect things and, you know, just gather assets. And I say they ain't making any more of it. So um, I just think, you know, the people used to say the old thing about, you know, safest houses, bricks and mortar. It's just a sector that I know and understand. So we just want to do as much of it as we can. 
in developing the the parking business, we opened up a second one, then a third one. Then we approached some of our competitors and said, look, do you want to sell? Because we really want to expand. And a couple of people were approaching kind of retirement age and we, we, we mopped up quite a few businesses, which was nice to do. Well, sorry, could I jump in just before you say that? I'll just give you, I'll just give you a wee tip. It's not actually as crazy as it sounds. No. It does sound crazy because when I started in business, that was back in the day when you would go to the bank for a bank loan and you would actually get a 25-year bank loan. Yeah. So my theory was, why would you have a five-year business plan when you've got a 25-year commitment, etc.? So that that's how it started. And also, you know, Japanese guidance think in terms of generations, not in terms of, uh, you know, years and short term. I, I introduced, this is genuinely true, in my 21st birthday when we opened up the first site, I would think long and hard about it because you had nothing else to do because it was quiet and it wasn't as busy. And I thought, would I rely on this business for my pension? Uh, and we introduced what we call the pension fund test, and we still have that to this day. An example of that is over the years, loads of people would approach me and say, oh, there's this big office block getting built down at Pacific Key in three years. I could probably get you a lease on that site and you could do quite well out of car parking. I said, well, you got to know your numbers. You will not make a penny from that site because you pay the rent, you pay all the overheads, set it up. It'll take you a year to get established. You'll make cash flow for 18 months, then you get six months to wind it down. You'll be lucky if you get a wage from it. So it's just not for us. And that was the pension fund test. And we still apply that in every single thing we do today. We're really not interested in doing short-term flips or you know, we can buy that this year and sell it next year and make a margin. It's just of no interest, you know. Life's too short and uh, getting the right deals properly done is too difficult. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, basically, Stuart, like, the way I picked that up for John, at the end of the day, he wants to buy appreciating assets and ones they can get return for. Nothing that would depreciate other than his Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> Which yes. has got a residual value, maybe. <laughs> but I mean, look, well, that's, that's just smart. I kept that box that it's uh, probably worth more today than I paid for it. But uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, that, it's a it's nice to hear that kind of discipline, John. Uh, but think about the long term, because of course, uh, the bigger the businesses you get involved in, the the numbers game is what everybody plays, and they do look quarter to quarter and year on year. They they look at that, and it's just the way it is, especially if you're out in the stock market. But uh, but it's good discipline to 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 actually advocate, you know, that long term appreciating assets. Yeah, the other thing that's crazy is we we actually had a a business plan which was kind of planned losses. Uh, you know, we would look at sectors where there was huge barriers to entry. We like businesses with big barriers to entry, and this was done by accident rather than design. But, you know, back in the day, if you go and set up a new car park business, you're not going to make money in year one. You're probably not going to make money in year two. But if you are amortizing those losses over the 25-year period and you're saying, OK, so I'm going to lose money in years one and two, I will hit break even in year three, maybe year four, and then I've got an annuity forever, which will be hopefully ever-rising positive cash flow and EBITDA. So, you know, we, we got into things going, we're in this for the long term. And all the guys and girls who were doing the kind of quick buck mentality, they just couldn't get into our sectors because the barriers to entry were high. 
and uh, a lot of people just wouldn't tolerate having planned losses but sometimes it can be a, a smart thing to do but again you've got to know the numbers you've got to know that that is the plan mm-hmm. yeah john just moving on uh, jumping forwards to 2015 you founded Scottish Capital and Storage Investments, which are commercial landlords. And it was, again, interesting to read that uh, you you still, even though car park spaces was land, you tended to, to review it or look at it more as a property business. You also set up the self-storage chain. What was the inspiration behind these businesses? Well, you know, everything we do is SPV companies. So if I've got one asset that's owned by one company, so we don't actually have a group. So Airlink Group was really just a brand of the, the rag bag and collection of assets that I'd collected. And because we, we sold the parking business in 2014, we just felt the Airlink Group was more airporty type stuff and sectors we weren't involved in. And uh, we thought it was time for a rebrand and, you know, you do a lot of soul searching and I came up with the name Scottish Capital, which I I loved, got the company name, got the domain name, it was great. Uh, And we really did a lot of soul searching about, we wanted some new key platform businesses that we could scale. The only thing I know about was property. So at the point of the sale, we we were renting you 12 and a half square meters of tarmac by the day or we would rent you some business warehouse type space, which could be 100,000 square foot by the year. So it's the only sector that I knew. So 2012 to 2014, I probably spent more time out of Scotland than I did in Scotland, because I was traveling around the world, going to all the property conferences, doing all the researching. And the three sectors that I came up with, I really thought there was going to be a big, big sea change in, and I obviously couldn't foresee COVID or anything like that. It was self-storage, small-serviced office space and smaller workspace units. There was loads of companies doing this. You know, most people were familiar with the names Big Yellow, Regis, Evans Easy Space, but nobody was doing it on the one site. So I'd go and speak to people who were customers of those kind of businesses and saying, you know, do you have any other premises? Well, yeah, we've got an office down the road or we've got a workshop down the road or a workspace. I said, if somebody was to have all of that in the one space, would that motivate you? Oh, absolutely. And that was the kind of light bulb moments we thought, right, let's do a pilot site. Uh, Most people, when they do a pilot site, find a tiny little small place and they'll try something at a very small scale. We were so gung-ho that it was going to work. We went and bought the old Mackay's factory building in Paisley, which I'm sure you'll know it, but it's 180,000 square feet. Uh, most people who didn't already think I was mad certainly thought I was mad after we bought that. And, uh, you know, I think even I thought I was mad because you think 180,000 square feet is just beyond madness. But today that is a real economic driver for Paisley and Renfrewshire. Loads and loads of amazing businesses located in there, easy in, easy out. Uh, And we operate under two brands. Storage Vault is the self-storage wing uh, and Coval is the office and the workspace brand. And, uh, you know, the, the 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 team in Glasgow are phenomenal at making all that happen. And I think they're up at, you know, site number 28 or something now. Uh, not all converted into operating centres yet, but they've got 17 or 18 fully operational, you know, Dundee, Stirling, Edinburgh. They, they've done a great job. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I know the Mackay's site well. 
and it's fantastic to see that it has actually been utilised again, as it lay, uh, lay dormant for quite some time. In the last year over the, the COVID period, you've also been uh, busy being the founding investor of both Alba and IOMcompany.com. Can you again tell us a wee bit more about how this in, or these investments came about? I can take credit for the latter, but not for the former. So <laughs> Alba is a funny one. Um, having lunch with Jim McCall one day, and he's telling me about the horror stories he's been hearing about the way some people have been treated by the big banks. You can imagine he gets loads of people coming to see him for advice, and a lot of it is how badly the big banks are treating their customers. And uh, I remember Jim saying something along the lines of, you know, it's absolutely shocking. Someone should really do something because there should be a bank that looks after SMEs and really goes back to the old school banking that you, you know, you're not getting scored by a committee. It's a, a person who gets to know you and understands the business. And I was probably just kind of half joking. I said, yeah, well, once you go and do that, count me in. And I made the mistake of forgetting that I was sitting chatting to Jim McCall, who has an idea that he actually does go and do it. So I think the next phone call I got was saying, um, how, how many shares are you buying in the, the new bank? We're going to do this. Uh, and it was, just, it was just such an exciting thing to be involved in. I mean, you know, to be able to say in 50 years from now, if I'm still around, you know, I was one of the founders of that new bank. It's, it's just such an exciting project. But more importantly than that, it's so badly needed. Uh, you know, the, the big, big banks are still so over leveraged in Scotland that I think there is a lot of international balance sheets dictating the credit policies. So, yeah, I think that one that one will be uh, hopefully a, a real success. Um, IOM Company is a similar story. Um, we do a lot of business in Isle of Man. Over there, you need to have a corporate service provider who does the kind of company secretarial type stuff for you. And I just had a really horrendous experience with a, a company over there and uh, it was like Kevin O'Leary's light bulb moment on Shark Tank in the US saying you know there has to be a better way so uh, I made some calls to people and uh, Greg Jones who was the head of KPMG uh, was one of my key advisors and uh, you know, I'm saying to him look we, there must be a way let's go and put the team together to make this happen and uh, Amazingly, we we've, we just did it and launched it. it. Took about eighteen months to get through all the regulatory processes. An amazing board. I'm not even on the board. I'm literally just a shareholder of that business and a, a, a client as well. So to avoid conflicts, I'm I'm not a director. But we've got some great directors. Greg's the chairman, head of KPOI, was head of KPMG. Uh, the other three founders are accountants and lawyers. So there's a very very strong team, and they all come at it from a customer focus first and if we get that right profits will follow down the line so that that's just a it's just a nice business to be involved in i think i think challenger banks are, are useful they need to do that but even scotland's a bit of a mess isn't it still we're still nationalized uh, with our rbs and the bank of scotland's not my favorite they've just been dealing with the dribs and drabs left over from lloyd's i'm still not a, a fan of them either but um, no, it's interesting. Challenger banks are a good thing. They're healthy. But the one thing they don't have to do is they don't have all those heavy central bank regulations on them for deposit taking. Yes. If that, you're actually, that, that's, that's where it becomes much more free. But I fully agree with you. I mean, 
I think that's it's the visibility. What, what Stuart and I have experienced talking to many people, including yourself, now bringing it up, is that SMEs are the lifeblood of jobs in Scotland. And uh, so, being being a person who can create an SME is great, but also working for an SME, you are real the real part of the real economy. And yeah. uh, it, it has to be also sustained and growing. That's what we would want. So all the young ones coming out now should be encouraged and, and to, to go in that direction, not just starting up their own, but actually getting involved in it. And I think we need to have a bit more of that community basis of, because they, they form their own little supply chains, SMEs, uh, because they shouldn't just be waiting in the big brother companies who are, you know, shelling out their purchase orders. That's not, that's, we don't want that dependency model anymore. It should be much more of a cooperative um, environment for SMEs and something a bit more friendly and a bit easier to take risks on their investments. But yeah. uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a big subject. It's a big subject. But if we could do something to encourage the young ones to get more involved, that would be great. I mean, it's not just uh, sitting at home, creating an online business. As smart as that can be if you've got the right proposition. But it's also getting involved and be thoughtful about getting into uh, a small business, uh, even uh, I, as a startup, even just to, to learn, you know, because you always have like the, the grey wigs that are around you with all the brains and the scars that understand what it's like to run a business. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite a big believer in that as well, John. I think there's something that's not promoting it well enough uh, out in the community. I don't hear it getting discussed. I always hear about it as an afterthought, as some strangled argument in a parliamentary debate somewhere. They're saying, oh, well, let's not forget about SMEs. Well, OK, let's not forget about it. But what actually, what about talking about them? What about setting the environment up correctly? What about getting the young people in there and getting new jobs around? What does that mean? So how can we bring that to life? So I think I'm I'm a big believer in that. So pleased to hear you're getting involved yeah. in that. So. I should say as well, there you know, for the avoidance of doubt, there are some amazing banks in Scotland. Um, you know, HSBC I think is a, a prime example of a of a really really good big international bank. Uh, I I find the team in HSBC in Scotland they have never been you know it's the most easy transaction to do business with these guys. They do what they say. There's no messing around. Uh, we've recently done some deals with Synergy Bank, who are brand new to Scotland. Um, Challenger Bank, you know, cracking experience with them as well. So, you know, it's easy to say all banks are bad, all banks are evil. That That's not true. You know, there are no. some good players out there, but I think, yeah. I, I think there should be more competition between the good banks and hopefully Alba will join the, the list of, of good banks and, you know, bring on the competition because there's so much business in Scotland. There's more than enough for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yep. Jim's the real driving force behind that bank. He's uh, he's on the board and he's put the whole team together. He's put the whole thing together. And there's a few of us yeah. um, that uh, it was nice to be invited to, to get on board on that journey. Um, mm. And hopefully it's going to be a, a great success and it's going to make a real difference to loads and loads of MSC, SMEs, the length and breadth of the country. Uh, I was curious as well, John, what is, uh, and I read this in your LinkedIn profile, what does the uh, BMS the movie about? 
So that all seems to be happening in parallel as well. What's what's going on there? <laughs> well, that yeah, that that was an interesting one. It was basically um, it was a, an app that we'd invested in, uh, and you know the, the the idea was it would get great exposure to to be in a movie. And a BMS was one of these crazy TV shows, the kind of college kids and all the nonsense that goes on in that. That I'm sure you can imagine, and they do a movie. So I um, got in touch with them and negotiated a product placement in the movie and a wee walk-on part because I'd never been in a movie and I thought that might be quite fun to do it. When we're over there, at the, it was over in Wilmington, we did the filming over there and it was fascinating just to see how you piece together a movie set. And uh, Alan Richardson was one of the main characters who so maybe remember he was in The Hunger Games. He'd been in loads of, he's, he's now in one of the, the Marvel movies. Um, he's a great guy. Uh, and the other kind of lead actor was a, a chap called Darren Brooks, who is uh, extremely famous in the US because he's in the TV show The Bold and the Beautiful, which is bigger than EastEnders and Corey combined. So, you know, for me, it was worth all the, the fun just to get to meet these two guys and they're still friends and we still catch up and WhatsApp and stuff. Uh, but it was just a, I just like these kind of crazy experiences that you can go and do. Mm -hmm. And as a, as a thank you, they made me executive producer as well. So it was quite nice to be able to say I've been <laughs> in a Hollywood movie. Yeah, the Spielberg of Paisley. Uh, no, I think I think given the number of takes I had to do to get one line correct, I think my acting career is, is over. I'll, I'll stick to the you know the the right side of the camera doing the numbers. <laughs> John, I also read a really interesting article about you and you came up with a few great quotes, if I can quote them back to you. I think you said that I think the definition of an entrepreneur is someone who stands up more times than they fall down. And that really resonated with me when I saw that. But you also said, I feel a lot of Scottish businesses feel that they can't ask for help or somehow it somehow means that it's demeaning them. And you said that you think that's absolute nonsense. It's hugely important to have somebody that you can phone on and be able to ask for that experience. I just wanted to ask, I think all of those contents are absolutely crucial because we've heard it a few times in our podcast. But I'd like to ask if we can just an elaboration of that. You've, you've worked nationally and globally in businesses. What's your experience of global talent compared to the talent in Scotland? You know, there's no doubt in my mind, and it doesn't. I don't want to demean anyone here at all, but there's no doubt in my mind that, that you know the the best talent in the world is in Scotland, and it's not about who's the smartest guy in the room or who's the richest guy in the room. It's about the state of mind. I mean, Scots are natural explorers. You know, if you look at your history, it will tell you all about your future. You know, Scots founded Hong Kong. We travelled the world, we created things, we invented things, and that's just part of the DNA of being Scottish. But but more importantly, you know, certainly in the business community, there's a real willingness to want people to succeed. And it's the help. So, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to join the Entrepreneurial Exchange in 1999. As I say, we'd only opened up really in 94. We were small beer. And I was exposed to the best of Scottish business talent, you know, Sir Tom Farmer, Brian Souter, Ian Wood, Jim McCall, Willie Hockey, Tom Hunter. I mean, it was just the most amazing years. And I went there just like a sponge. 
absorbing every sentence of knowledge. And, you know, you when you do that, you really get into the ethos and it gets into your DNA. What's this all about? Work hard, play hard, give something back. I went to so many events that in one, one year, I actually found out that I'd attended every single event. And for a bit of fun, the board gave me an award for being the best attending member. Uh, and a couple of years later, I went on to be vice chairman and really gave that ethos more and more. So it's just a fabulous organizer. Well, it was amazing back in the day. Um, but I do think there's a, a thing that, you know, people phone you up out of the blue or they'll message you. And if you humanly can, you'll do a Zoom call with them. You'll give them a bit of advice and help. I don't think, I'm sure that happens across the world. But I don't think it happens on the same scale that it does in Scotland. You you phone any of the people that I've just mentioned and ask them how many calls do they get and how many things do they actually do? And I think the proportion will be higher than most other countries in the world, for sure. I know these guys all do that stuff. So, you know, that that's really the, the Scottish difference. It's, 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 it's interesting that you're talking about Scottish and, and, and what we have done. We use a, a, a quote uh, from the I was going to side of things and say that we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And if you do look back to the Scottish Enlightenment, which uh, Lord Hoy talked about, uh, you know, the amount of people that we had that were inventors, we had the best engineers, we had, we've, we've challenged the world in many respects, but actually also reflecting to where uh, you've you've came from yourself, John, and Paisley. Paisley, I think, is a microcosm of Scotland. And if you look at the coats uh, and what they managed to achieve uh, within the weaving industry, in today's terms, I think people forget that the coats had the same amount of uh, value. They created the same amount of wealth as Bill Gates has nowadays within Microsoft. And that's an amazing thing that I would probably say that we just don't talk about ourselves often enough. We don't, from a Paisley perspective, you'd probably find that 70% of people in Paisley don't know that analogy about Bill Gates and how entrepreneurial we were. And I think it's hugely important we, we, we do get that message out to a lot of people because we've got a huge amount of, in my opinion, latent skills. And we just need to open that and get that. Uh, that, that. But I'm, I'm moving on just a wee bit if we can. And, and on a similar tact, and the Hunter Foundation was saying that in a, in a report, sorry, that they wanted to increase a debate in Scotland to find the best ways to increase the economy whilst tackling poverty. What would you add to that debate? I th I've not read the report, but, uh, you know, if, if obviously post-COVID, getting the economy moving is the most important thing other than the health crisis, obviously. And I think the best way you can get people out of poverty is to get them a job. And the best thing that government could do is actually listen to the people who create those jobs, the wealth creators, the business people, the entrepreneurs. But uh, sadly in Scotland, we've got a kind of back to the future scenario where there seems to be a drive to take us back to the 1970s. Now, luckily I was a very, yeah, I was only born in the 70s, but you know, you just have to go and look at how efficient was the nationalized train service how long did it actually take you to phone BT and get a phone line put in? It was months and months. And this really worries me about the success of Scotland, that we are having a, a back to the future moment. You know, it's going to fail. It failed in the 70s. It will fail now. 
My tally on vanity wastage is running north of a billion pounds. Between nationalising and stealing Ferguson's from, from Jim McCall, Presswick Airport money wasted, Bifab money wasted, 500 million for the aluminium smelter. That story's gone very quiet. Wait until that re-emerges. Now, if you've got a billion pounds, why not give that billion pounds to Scottish Enterprise and say you are mandated to partner, work with the job creators who will create these jobs and drive the country out of poverty? You know, I mean, a point that you raised earlier about SMEs. I mean, the Federation of Small Business is the entity that will help drive the economy better than anything government can do. You want to be giving money to those kind of organisations to, to pick the winners. Governments can't pick winners. Entrepreneurs and business people can pick the winners. Uh, it's a very, very sad and bleak state of affairs. I also think it reflects, John, the the quality of the people who are at Holyrood. Because these guys, uh, if you compare, I don't know if you've uh, worked internationally, uh, say in Singapore or whatever, the, those societies, they, they groom and they take the best, smartest young ones and put them into a training programme and make them believe in their country and give them very big responsibilities at government level. We don't have the best people at the top. That's the problem. And therefore, the people who are, say, got the savvy, been successful, understand more globalisation, um, be able to create jobs as in Scotland, they're not in these jobs. And they wouldn't want to go and take any of those political jobs because they know it would just be frustrating for them. So I've got a bit of a quandary. We've got all these really uh, very well and successful uh, business people who've got economic future thoughts about what could happen in Scotland, but they don't have the power or sit in the power to, to make these big decisions where to put that kind of investment. So that is part of the hurdle we've got to jump, unfortunately. But I'm just thinking about the young ones. Somehow the young ones already come through that. If business is going to have a bigger say on uh, the investment of future in Scotland, boy, we need some way to get the right voices at the table. It doesn't feel like it's there. Certainly the people are here. I might be wrong on this point, but I don't think we have one cabinet secretary in Scotland who has any business experience. That means they've never woke up in the morning not knowing if they're going to put food on the table at the end of the week. They've never woke up in the morning and worried about how they're going to pay the, the wage bill for all their employees who are working slavishly to, to help that business grow and develop. You know, uh, you've got to have these things. And, you know, that's why, you know, I, I think we're very fortunate to have a Secretary of State in Alistair Jack. He is a hugely successful businessman in his own right. He instinctively knows what's right from wrong. Uh, and what we have to do to get over this pandemic, and yet he's so understated. You know, Alistair right. doesn't go out and grab headlines and look at me. Just He's doing what I think is real public service. You know, the guy doesn't need to be in politics, doesn't need all the flack that comes with it, and most people mm. really successful just won't touch politics. Most people won't even comment no. on politics because you get the online Twitterati who attack people and 
you know, the, the Queen drinks a glass of iron brew and I've now everybody in Scotland who's of a certain persuasion has got to stop drinking iron brew and ban it. I mean, it's just nonsense. You know, it's absolute not. I mean, it worries me what people think about our reputation internationally going, uh, your head of state has a drink and people want to boycott that drink. It's utter madness. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. No, but that's why I make the comparison, say, internationally to, say, a, a country like Singapore. It's got five and a half million people, not unlike Scotland, right? <laughs> but look how successful they are. And at the heart of it is you've got you've got very good talent who run their country and they bring them up through the young ones and, bre- and get the brightest ones possible in there and established in it. And and when you're partnering, uh, I mean, they have regulations, don't get me wrong, but when it comes to, say, a trading society where um, they try to finance uh, everybody fairly and uh, they're friendly to trade and they, they build volume and they continuously, you know, so you say to yourself, why, you know, with all the talent and the history we've had, John, why can't we do that? Why can't we be a Singapore and or... You know, even as part of the United Kingdom, if it creates many Singapores all around with uh, with uh, free ports, etc., there's something that we could do, and that'd also help to be a better, friendly environment for business and creating jobs, right? But it, we just don't have the talent. I agree with you. I just don't have the talent in uh, the top in the political region. That's the issue. Yeah. You must have, and all the businesses that you've developed over the years and the investments that you've got, you must have huge career highlights, but we're also interested in your career's lows. Is there any two that stand out, a a high and a low within your career, John, that you could tell us about? I guess in terms of highlights, there's kind of, I guess there's two moments there that come to mind. Uh, I told you that I had two jobs uh, in my part-time student career. The first was at NCP, uh, and the second one was actually at one of the long-stay car park sites. And I guess one of the highs for me was the day we bought that business. Uh, that was quite a fun thing to do. Um, and I think the, the real high point for me was in 2014 when we, we sold that business and I decided that it was time to hand the reins over to the team. And I, I think real business success comes when you know you've assembled, all all you do is assemble the chairs and you assemble the orchestra. I think that's a real high point for any honest entrepreneur because everybody likes to think they're the best at everything. I'm sure if you ask people in my office, they'll tell me they think that I still probably do. But uh, I think the real high point is when you know you've assembled a team of experts and people who know more than you do about everything they do. And that, that to me is the real success point. That's more valuable and you get more of a kick out of that than any business deal. Uh, I guess the low point for me was when my my first ever business got compulsory purchased. And I fought that for years. I spent disproportionate huge sums of money trying to stop the project uh, and fighting it. And you know, you just learn, you just can't really fight the, the government machine. Um, but thankfully for us, the, the, the RailLink project was cancelled and by law, the assets had to be sold at public auction. So for sentimental reasons, we bought it back. So I guess that was a low followed by another high. So three three highs and one low, that's a good ratio. That's all right. You've got the long term in your head, though. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
touching briefly on what you said was a career highlight, it's interesting that, that you'd mentioned it and a different parallel to some of the other guests, but it also parallels with a lot of the entrepreneurs that we've spoken to. And they, they say that it's hugely important that they have, Ricky Nicol, I suppose, said this most uh, most uh, vocally. He said, uh, I've just been very, I've been supported by the best board. They're really good at doing what they do. It's not me that does it. And, and I said at the time, the real skill that Ricky was actually being modest about was his ability to lead that boardroom that he talked about. It's not everybody that can employ their best skills the way in which he had and be able to get them to work for him and manage them accordingly. And I think that's the skill that seems to be coming out a lot within the entrepreneurs, that they've got that ability to be able to get the best out of the team and get the best people to work for them. I think, again, it's back to your outlook. So if you're if you're quite content having a small business with two people and you want to be have a final say on what colour the paper clips are going to be and all the you know the real mundane stuff. But what you really gotta do is 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 empower people to go and do what they think is right because most people who found the business will never admit to themselves and they certainly won't admit to other people that uh, you know there's a whole raft of people who are far better qualified. Most people who start a business do not have the skill sets to run a business. And I would say I fall classically into that camp. You know, I, I, I'm i not the best person to run a business, but I'll maybe be the best guy to come up with the ideas about what we're going to do over the next five years. And, you know, maybe you, you throw a curveball in and go, look, we haven't thought about this. Why don't we go and look at that? But uh, if, you're, if you're a founder, you're probably not the best person to run it. And it can take between one and never years for people to work that out. And the sooner you work it out and the sooner you address it, the bigger and more successful you'll be. And it's almost like that in a simple way, uh, what I look at is you have to have in the business, the one who explores and looks to the future. And then the other one who has to operate and control it and make the money. So you have to have both those dimensions. It's not always in the one person. So. Bigger companies, of course, have chief executives and chief operating officers or chief financial officers. But in a smaller company, you need to have the guy who looks after, you know, looks backwards and makes sure everything's aligned and working. And the yeah. person who looks forward and finds all the future opportunities and, and finds the way forward. It's, so, a, it's a tough thing to achieve and every business is different. It depends on the size and the scale and the complexity. But as I say, the sooner you actually realise that that's a topic for real investigation, soul searching and discussion, the better. I saw that you you went to Harvard Business School at some point as well, John. I mean, I've, I've got some interest there because there's a couple of my case studies in there as well. But um, how did how did that experience go for you? Yeah, that was brilliant. You know, the wee, the wee boy from Paisley with one senior hires after two sittings and I get to go to Harvard Business School and get taught private equity and venture capital by Josh Lerner, the Dean of Faculty, who is world class in, in everything he does. So yeah, that was that was a fun experience. Uh, and I'm still I'm still I'm still in contact with uh, a lot of the people who were on that course. And some of them have got on to be huge successes. I mean, one of the chaps who was on the course was very friendly with, he's now the, the chairman of uh, the Saudi companies at Aramco. It's going to be the biggest flotation in the world. And he's chairman yeah. of that company. 
There was another chap, uh, Ahmed Al Rain, who was like the chief executive of the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Bahrain, and just this really, really interesting mix of people. Mm-hmm. It was actually so good I'd go back and do the course again. Just you know, I think I, that was in two thousand and ten. I mean, I, I would go back and do it again just because the people you meet are just some of the most interesting people I've ever met in my life. It's a great experience. I, I, I was fortunate enough to do that with GE. They had their own university and the same idea because they had so many global businesses, but great, great experience. Um, I, I, that's some, again, that's another thing that I don't know if we're seeing it promoted as much. The young ones now as well, I, I'd really like the young ones to believe in taking an opportunity to go somewhere else as well. You know, like you spent a while out of Scotland, but you're still able to remain connected. Um, I mean, way back in the generation before me, my, my mother and father's generations, there are brothers and sisters of their families who are all over the world because they went looking for opportunities because, you know, to get a better job. But uh, and that was a big drama- dramatic event, you know, emigration, as if you'll never come back. But it's not like that now. The world is a smaller place. But although we've been confined a little bit by, you know, what's happened with the pandemic, we should still be encouraging people to go and explore and try out and get that some global experience. It'll open their minds and, and it'll make them realise themselves that they can actually achieve something like that. They can get a life experience that'll make them a different person. It'll open their minds. And actually, if they're, if they're interested in running a business or being involved in, in running a business, they'll actually be better for it. That, that's another thing that I'd really like to see encouraged is that something that you would advocate or something that you've got some examples of, John? Oh, 100%. Um, I mean, you know, the, the Saltar Foundation are, are doing that, to be fair. They, they kind of do a top sweep of some of the best and brightest kind of graduates uh, and send them around the world. Uh, and it does open everyone's eyes that the world's a big, bad place and there's so many opportunities out there and people do think differently and people do things differently and what we've been brought up in this little narrow silo in Scotland isn't the only game in town. So, yeah, I mean, listen, travel broadens the mind. Um, I spend a a disproportionate amount of time travelling around the world now. John, just to uh, always finish off, you'll be pleased to hear there's only two other questions (laughs) I'd like to ask if we can. Colin uh, has uh, talked often to me about being inspired by uh, uh, working uh, and managing to work with uh, Jack Welsh at GE. And you talked about uh, Tom Hunter, and we have some real inspirational characters. You talked about Tom uh, Farmer as well uh, within the entrepreneurial side. But from your own perspective, have you been inspired by any books or any particular person uh, individually from your own perspective, John? Yeah, I mean, this is going to sound like a cliched one, so I'll give you my rationale for, for I've, I've thought of a couple of names, but, you know, I think in any of these lists, you've got to put Richard Branson up at the top. And my reason for choosing Richard Branson is probably different to most people's, not because he's famous and he's got an island and all this stuff. He's, I think, the only entrepreneur that I'm aware of who has built from scratch a billion-dollar company five or six times in five or six different sectors. So I'm more impressed with what Richard Branson's done than what Jeff Bezos has done. And Jeff Bezos has made, you know, maybe 50 times what Branson's made. But I think to have the dynamics to change 
tack and say we're doing a movie business, a music business. Now we're going to do an airline. Now we're going to do a financial services business. There are so many different silos. I think that's a real skill that actually, ironically, I think Branson gets underrated for his, you know, the way he can change from sector to sector. I think when you're looking at attention to detail and, and real stuff, you've got to look at sport. Uh, and somebody I've got to know quite well over the last kind of 10 years is Sir Jackie Stewart. And he tells you the stories about how he got to be the success that he is. His attention to detail is more intense than anyone else I think I've ever met. Formula One, when he's doing the photo session for his cars, you know, the tyres have all got to be blackened, the lettering's in white painted, the tyres have all got to be positioned to jack the car up so all the tyres are positioned exactly with the brand name on display. Uh, I hope he won't mind me telling this story, but I remember he was saying he had one of the biggest pictures of his life, I think, was to HSBC in Hong Kong, and he turned up the day before. And the lady at the front desk said, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Stewart, you're here a day early. He said, oh, no, I know that. When can I go into the room? And he actually went into the room that he was going to pitch in, got familiar with it, so it wasn't strange. You know, I was at a conference with, with Jackie, and he was sitting on the panel on the stage, and he got up off his chair and turned the Highland Spring water bottles around because the label was facing him. And he said, I can see it's Highland Spring, but I'm guessing the sponsors want you to see their brand. The attention to detail is just world class. Rolex sponsored Jackie when he was a racing driver. And I think they still do. And I'll tell you something. I'll bet you he knows more about every tip, every brand of Rolex, every style, every model than anyone else alive. He's just such a mind-blowing individual. Uh, and if you can put that attention to detail into whatever you're doing, you will be a success. Yeah. Final question, John. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Other than other than being told by my dad, you know, don't put your finger in the electric socket and don't ever give a personal guarantee. Uh, the obvious one is if somebody offers you their word or their bond, take the bond. <laughs> well, what if they say my word is my boy? <laughs> well, if they live up to that, they'll be in the minority. <laughs> and, and, and on the, the other side of that, John, what's the best piece of advice you would pass on to the next generation of budding entrepreneurs? Don't fall into the trap of thinking success means you've got to run your own business and be an entrepreneur. It really is not for everyone. Find something that you're really passionate about. Find a way to make that part of your life. If you can turn that into a wee hobby business and get pocket money or get a few extra quid at the end of every week, and who knows, it might actually turn into a really big, big business, might even be a global business. But if you don't enjoy what you're doing, you will never do it well. It doesn't matter how much money is available. You know, you don't want to be the richest guy in the graveyard and be unhappy. You've got to do what makes you smile, what makes you happy, because it's worth more than all the money in the world. Yeah, great, great advice, John. John McGlynn, thanks very much for joining us here on the I Was Going to Podcast. It's been a pleasure meeting you this afternoon. Thanks for inviting me along. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks, John.